0: Tim for leading us in communion. Now, if you'll get your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4, verse 27 through 42, is where we're going to be studying this morning. We continue our study in the Gospels, working our way chronologically through each of these four books. And so we're at John 4:27 continuing our study of um, Jesus and the woman at the well or the woman of Samaria. I heard about it. We'll back up to verse uh, 25 to kind of pick it up there. So the woman said to him, speaking to Jesus, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, So the disciples said to one another, "'Has anyone brought him something to eat?' Jesus said to him, "said to them, "'My food is to do the will of him who sent me "'and to accomplish his work. "'Do you not say there are yet four months, "'then comes the harvest? "'Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes "'and see that the fields are white for harvest. "'Already the one who reaps is receiving wages "'and gathering fruit for eternal life "'so that sower and reaper may rejoice together.'" For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. In a moment, we're going to pray again about our sermon. But before we do that, I want to give four glimpses, really, of spiritual blindness that we've already seen over the last few weeks. First in John 2.19 We remember Jesus was in the temple, right? And Jesus said to the Jews there, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? You see, they had no spiritual sight to understand what Jesus was talking about, namely his own death and resurrection and him becoming the place where everyone would be able to go and meet God. Second in John Uh, chapter 3, we saw Nicodemus come to Jesus at night. And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And remember, Nicodemus says, Well, wait a minute. How can a man be born again? Do, Do I have to go back into my mother's womb? How can this happen? You see, at that point in his life, Nicodemus also had no spiritual sight of what Jesus was talking about. Namely, that there is a second spiritual birth And it brings into being something that did not exist before in you, a living spirit and the ability to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Third, we saw uh, over the last few weeks, Jesus with the woman at the well. And he said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman says to him, sir, you, you don't have anything to draw with. And the well is deep. Also, she at that time had no spiritual sight of what Jesus was talking about, that the supernatural spiritual life that comes from receiving Christ is himself. And he is that eternal water, that eternal spring. He has eternal life to give to us. And forth today in our text, we hear the disciples say to Jesus, Rabbi, eat. And Jesus says to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And the disciples say to each other, has anyone brought him something to eat? They also had no spiritual sight, no spiritual understanding of what he was talking about when he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So four glimpses of spiritual blindness, and that is why we're going to pray right now before we hear the word of God preached. Let us pray. Father, we, we've seen here already over the last few weeks examples of spiritual blindness, people who do not have spiritual sight. And so we ask you, Lord God, even now to take away our blindness, that we may see that you are who you say you are, that you are the God of the universe, that you are our, our, our God, our, our Christ, our Savior, our Messiah. Lord, we know that, that, that this blindness can be caused because we're either dead or we're, we're dull. We're dead in our sins and transgressions, and we are yet to be reborn, or, or we're dull because we have allowed the world and Satan or our flesh to get in the way, and we, we look at Scripture through a fog or through a haze. Lord, wipe that away. Lord, fan into flame our, our love for you. Lord, set our hearts on fire, our minds on fire as we hear your word today being preached. Lord, I pray both for myself and for our listeners as we worship you through this sermon, We've worshiped you now through singing and through prayer. We've worshiped you during communion, and now we worship you at the preaching of your word. We thank you for, for speaking to us here. Lord, I pray again that you will do a miraculous work in the people who are hearing this, this message. You will turn their hearts to you. You will cause them to be reborn and that they may be saved. Lord, help me again to, to speak clearly what is what is of you, that I may not harm these people in any way or see, say anything that is untrue or or wrong about about your Son, or your Holy Spirit, or yourself, Father. Lord, I pray again that you would crush my pride, and that I may decrease, and that you may increase. Lord, we love you today, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So in John 4, verse 27, the woman is there at the well with Jesus, and the disciples return. Verse 27 says, Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled, That he was talking with a woman. Theologian Andreas Kostenberger says about this section that Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well had to bridge several major gulfs. And this is kind of a review of the last couple of weeks. Several major gulfs had to be bridged. First, there was the ethnic gulf. Samaritans and Jews had no dealings with one another, and their history was strained, to say the least. The Samaritans had built a temple on Mount Gerizim to worship God around 400 BC. And that temple was destroyed by the Jews in approximately 128 BC, uh, who claimed that proper worship could only be conducted in the temple at Jerusalem. You can see how that may strain the relationship between these two peoples. Second, there was also a religious gulf. The Samaritans only acknowledged the Pentateuch, or the five books of Moses, as scripture. And the Jews' canon uh, also included the writings and the prophets, the, pretty much the entire Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Then there was the moral gulf. We have Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, holy and pure, talking to this Samaritan woman who has had five sexual partners and is not married to her present companion. This woman has been living in an illicit uh, fornicating relationship she's a woman who's left a trail of broken relationships behind her and we would say today um, in common parlance maybe that she's just she's shacking right now okay she's just shacking up with the guy now she's uh, you know my mom my mom might have said she was the town floozy okay uh, and so we find her as, as, as Pastor Zach was telling us at the, at the, at the, the hottest part of the day at the well when the rest of the women are not there. Maybe because she's outcast, she doesn't want to see them, she doesn't want to hear their you know, gossip or whatever else, but, but here she is, truly a sinful woman. And the disciples marvel that Jesus is speaking to her. And in some ways we marvel as well, don't we? But I want to encourage you today that we should marvel not that Jesus is speaking to this woman. We should marvel that Jesus speaks to us. We should marvel that Christ has spoken to you. You see, you join a long line of sinners who have been saved by grace and the mercy of our great God. Think back to to the Apostle Peter when he first is exposed to Christ. he, He sees this miraculous catch of fish with Jesus and how does he respond? In Luke 5 verse 8, It says, but when Simon Peter saw it, this miraculous catch of fish, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He was correct, wasn't he? He was a sinful man. And he says, depart from me. But Jesus basically says, no. No, I'm not going to depart from you because you're a sinful man. I'm going to bring you into the kingdom. I'm going to make you an apostle, one of my messengers. We later see... Paul, who was formerly called Saul, who's a persecutor of the church. And Saul himself says in his own testimony, 1 Timothy 1:15, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Other translations say he calls himself the chief of sinners. He is the sinner. Paul later, as an apostle, writes to the church at Corinth, and he says this, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, through Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, And such... Were some of you. He's not looking at that pure little church and saying, you know, those bad guys are all out there. Those sinners are all out there. No, they're all right here. Right? And this could be said of us as well, couldn't it? And such were some of us. Actually, such were all of us. Right? Right. But you were washed, he goes on and says. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Romans 5, 8 tells us, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I was witnessing to a a gentleman one time, and we were having a conversation about Christianity and the gospel, and he was not a believer, and he said to me, Said, you know, man, you guys are just weak, right? Christianity is just a crutch. It's just a big crutch. And I said, now you understand Christianity. That's exactly what Christianity is. It is a big crutch. Jesus himself said it in Luke 5:31:32. He said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Christianity is a big crutch. You see, there's two ways you can go to heaven. There's two ways to be saved. One is on your own by living your holy, righteous, and sinless life. You can walk right into heaven. Here I am on my own righteousness. I'm right here. Let me in. The rest of us will go on the righteousness of Christ and by grace and by the mercy of our our God because our Savior Jesus has taken our sin upon himself. You see, the gospel has two parts, Pastor Tim Keller says. The gospel has two parts, and it's these. You are more wicked and evil than you ever dared believe. Let that sink in for a minute. You are more wicked and evil than you ever dared believe. And... You are more loved, valued, and accepted than you ever dared hope. You hear both those statements in that passage we read a minute ago, Romans five eight. But God chose His love for us, and for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the woman comes to the well, right? And when she comes, originally, what does she think she needs? What does she think she needs when she first shows up? Water, right? She just comes for water. She needs to take a bucket of water back home to do her cooking, to do her washing. But what does she really need? What does she really need? She needs salvation. She needs Christ. She needs reconciliation with the Father God. You see, when Christ fills our deepest need, all other needs pale in comparison when christ feels our deepest need all other needs pale in comparison we see that in john four twenty eight. the woman so the woman left her water jar and went away into town she brings the jar she's got it there to fill with water and she she hears the gospel basically from jesus christ and and she forgets the whole reason she came and she runs into town Pastor Deborah was talking to me about this last night. She said how that stuck in her mind. It's I mean, just the idea of what she's, it is so important for her to have water for her family that day. And she runs and leaves. And just think of the jar itself. You can't just go down and get another bucket at Target, right? That's probably, you know, this is a, this is the pottery jar, handmade, I'm sure. Probably not. You just don't pick up these things anywhere, right? But she just forgets that need and she runs into town. You see, Christ is our ultimate need, and all other needs are penultimate. People have come to church and to this church for for many different reasons and find that they have a greater need. uh, Our elder, Tim Robinson, just spoke to us today and led communion for us, and I I called Tim this week and asked him if I could could share this. Tim came to this church over 20 years ago, right, Tim? And... um, he came here because of a, of a broken relationship. And he said, he said when he came to this church, he was looking to belong to something. He was just looking to belong to something, to, to fill the void that was left by this relationship that was broken. And he came looking to belong to something, and what happened was he ended up belonging to someone, to someone he said he, 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 he wasn't a person of faith at the beginning. He, he just came searching. He came looking. And he got in many church. And he came to the classes. And he came to church. And, and the Holy Spirit caused him to be reborn. And Christ gave him faith. And um, he's here today, right? One of our elders. And I remember coming to this church about 20 years ago. At that time, Tim was teaching over here the junior high Bible class in the mornings. And I ended up being one of his co-teachers. And uh, I walked in and met this guy. And Tim Robinson gave me books, gave me CDs. My theology, my love of the sovereignty of God, my love of the holiness of God and his beauty and his glory is directly related to my relationship with my brother Tim Robinson. He's had a profound impact on my life. You see, God uses saved sinners to save sinners. God uses saved sinners to save sinners. So the woman left her water jar. Verse 28. She left her water jar and she went away into town and she said to the people, come. Come on. See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Brothers and sisters, God uses broken people to heal broken people. Author Paul David Tripp has a book called this, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. That's who we are, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. And the subtitle of that book is, People in Need of Change, Helping People Who Need to Change. Isn't that who we are? We're all instruments in the Redeemer's hands. We're people who need to change, helping people who need to change. I found this this week, an old Gaelic proverb says this, God strikes straight blows with crooked sticks. That's pretty good, right? I'm a crooked stick, and so are you, right? And uh, I guess we don't really beat up each other with those crooked sticks, do we? But, But God uses us, doesn't he? That's the point. God uses us in the lives of others. Someone has said this, and you've heard it before, I'm sure. I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, right? That's evangelism. What is evangelism? It's simply sharing good news. Sharing the good news. Evangelism, it's, it's good newsing, okay? It's good newsing. It's, it's harvesting. It's, it's being a bringer. And that's what this woman is doing. Alistair Begg calls it frangelism. Frangelism, okay? Which stands for friends, relatives, and neighbors. Friends, relatives, and neighbors. We need to be encouraged by this woman, how she goes out into the community. Now, why does she go? Why does she go back to the village? She goes into town, I believe, because she has been transformed. She's been transformed. I believe the love of Christ is already doing its work, and she can't help it. She can't help it. We can't help but talk about what we love. We just can't help it. I talk a lot about the boy, okay? My wife and I have always referred to, to uh, Hayden affectionately as the boy, okay? God has done a mighty work in the boy and you played a part in that mighty work. And I'm sorry, you have to forgive me. I can't stop talking about my boy. The other day, uh, last week or so he was in the bathtub and I was giving him a bath and uh, he's six years old now and he's sitting there, you know, and all of a sudden he says, Dad, let's talk about God. And I go, okay, all right, go for it. And he says, and he gets his little finger going. I don't know, where, I, maybe, maybe I do this. but <laughs> His little finger, he says, he goes, now we know that the kingdom of God is spreading. And I go, well, that's yes, true. Jesus did say, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And he, and he goes, and we know that God is keeping Satan down. That's right. Because God is not, God is more powerful than Satan. So yes, that's true. Now we know, Dad, that we should follow the path of righteousness. I said, that's right, we are, because Jesus is on the path of righteousness. I said, that's true. We should not follow the path of wickedness. I think, whoa, wickedness, that's, that's a big word. That's right, because Satan is on the path of wickedness. And I go, well, man, amen, son, preach it, right? So uh, I end up finishing his bath and we dry him off and, and I'll never forget this picture. He's standing now, he walks out into the living room where my wife is and Linda's there and he's got his footy pajamas on. He's standing there in his little pajama pajamas, you know, this tall. And he's looking and, he, and, I, and I say, tell mom some of what you're telling me. And he starts to preach to, now mom, we know that the kingdom of God is spreading, Right? <laughs> And so he preaches his whole little sermon to her, and she looks at him, she goes, Wow, where did you get that? And he goes, Oh, I don't know, probably from him. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said and then he said this, which which actually caused me I, I had to I started to to cry because he said he said, Yeah, you know, because he's always talking about God. Praise God that that was said about. I don't say that to toot my own horn. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, with our children, talk about God. Talk about God. You see, we can't help but talk about who we love. We can't help it. Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks If our mouth isn't speaking, maybe our heart is empty. Pray that God will fill your heart with his love. You see, what we don't talk about is irrelevant. What we don't talk about is irrelevant to us. So let's talk. Let's talk about God. Let's follow the the example of this beautiful woman from Samaria. You see, 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For the love of Christ controls us, the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. God is controlling this woman as she goes into the town to tell the people about Jesus. I don't know if you've heard the story of how the gospel came to Korea. But in the 1800s, there was a Welsh missionary named Robert J. Thomas. And he left Wales, and first he went to China with his young bride, and he served there only for four months, because after four months in China, his, his young bride passed away. And heartbroken, he returned back to Wales and was there, but, but he, he had a heart for missions. He had a heart for the people, and so he realized he knew how to speak Chinese, and they had Chinese Bibles in his missionary society, and so he determined to go to Korea, because many of the people in Korea at that time could speak Chinese, and so he had heard that, and so he was able to join himself to a U.S. trading boat bound for Korea, bound for the city of Pyongyang in 1866 with the intention of sharing the gospel to those people. Well, at that time, Korea was a closed country. It was not open to America. It was not open to trading ships. But this ship was going to take a chance anyway and go up the river of, um, uh, I think it's Tidang. Yes, up the river. Thank you, though, brother. <laughs> up the river of Tidang. And um, as it went in, the, the, the Koreans were stopping the ship from coming in. They began to fire on the ship. And the, actually, the people on board, uh, who I, I don't know if the only Christian was uh, Mr. Thomas, but, but, but they fired back. And a, a battle ensued between the ship, the people on the ship, and the, the Koreans. The tide went out in the river, and the ship stuck fast on a sandbar and could not leave. And the Koreans from the shore began sending burning rafts over to the ship and actually set the ship on fire, forcing everyone on board to jump overboard and to wade ashore where the Koreans were waiting for them with guns and swords and clubs. And a battle broke out on the beach. Different accounts, there's probably three different accounts of what happened to Robert J. Thomas, but each account talks about how he met his demise there at the beach. He jumped overboard with armloads full of Chinese Bibles And each account says he just kept yelling out, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And as people are shooting and clubbing and stabbing each other, he is trying to shove Bibles into the hands of these Korean people, yelling, Jesus, Jesus. One account says that he was clubbed to death there by the villagers. Another account says that as he handed the Bible into one man's hand, his head was lopped off by a machete. Another account says that he was uh, executed there on the beach by the police force. But we do know this. That Robert J Thomas gave his life, the first American or the first uh, Christian martyr in Korea in 1866. Those Bibles then were picked up and went off into the villages. Some accounts say that some took the Bibles and took the pages out and wallpapered their houses, used it for wallpaper. And later, 30, 40 years later, there was a revival that broke out in Pyongyang people coming to Christ. And when American missionaries or or, or Christian missionaries showed up later, they found that there were many Christians already in Korea. And today in South Korea, over 40% of the country is Christian. In 2011, a church in Korea sent a, a Korean Christian children's choir to Wales to sing at the home church of Robert J. Thomas that still stands today as pretty much a museum. It's been there for 300 years. And you can can Google that and see these little children in in authentic Korean dress singing about this beloved missionary from Wales who's pretty much unknown to us, but in Korea, he's a hero. They built a church there in Pyongyang called the Thomas Memorial Church. You see, many of us would say he, he, he wasn't a very good missionary. He really didn't even get to preach even a sermon. But he couldn't help it, right? He couldn't help it. He had to tell people about the person that he loved. Brothers and sisters, true evangelism is radical friendship. It is radical friendship. To not share the gospel is not, it's not courteous, but it's cruel. And so we want to follow the example of Robert J. Thomas. We want to follow the example of this Samaritan woman Verse 29 and 30, she says, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Why do the townspeople come to Jesus? We don't really need to over spiritualize it. It's simple. The townspeople come because they're invited. It's simple. They're invited. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, invite them, invite them to church. Your friends, relatives, and neighbors, invite them. There was a study done by the North American Missionary Board just recently, and it found that 67% of Americans said this was 15,000 15, people surveyed. 67% of Americans say a personal invitation from a family member would be uh, very effective in getting them to visit a church. 63% said a personal invitation from a friend or a neighbor would be effective in having them visit a church. Ed Stetzer, researcher, says this, the primary lesson North American believers should learn from this research is that many of your unchurched friends are ready for an invitation to conversation. And he says, unbelievers next door still need a simple personal invitation to talk, to be in community, and to come to church. Another study done with 1,000 uh, 20-somethings, un- unchurched 20-somethings, uh, they were asked this question, would you be willing to study the Bible if a friend asked you to? In that study, 61% said they would. And of their 30-year-old counterparts, 42% said they would be willing to study the Bible if someone asked them to. So I want to encourage us. Invite. Invite. Let's, be, let's all be Samaritan women, okay? Let's be women at the well. Let's say, come on. As we sang earlier, Come on. Come on. Come to church with me. Just just come and see. Come and see what God has done in my life. Come and see what's happened with me. I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. Saved by grace. Come. Come and experience what I've experienced. Just come to church. Just check it out. You see, the Samaritans do respond. Why do they respond? The Samaritans respond in faith to the woman's testimony. They respond to her testimony. And they respond with more faith because of Jesus' testimony. They first believe because of her, but then they have greater faith because of Jesus Himself. Listen in verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever, that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let that be our testimony in our, in our, our feeble attempts like the woman, hey, just, just, just come on. God's doing something in my life. I can't explain it. Just, just come and see. And then our friends and neighbors can say, whoa. I mean, we came because you invited us but now it's not because of what you said, it's because of what I have heard. I have, I have gone to the well. I have drunk of the living water. I now have eternal life. I believe because of Jesus. Come on. Well, Jesus in, this, in the passage, John here shows kind of two accounts. First there's the account of the woman at the well, and then, and then later here it says what happens with the, with the Samaritan People And in the middle of this section, Jesus gives commentary on kind of what ha- what's happening. It's almost like hitting the, the commentary button on your DVD, right, when you're watching those movies. In John 4, 31 through 38, some tremendously important words of Jesus explain to us the deeper dimension of what is happening with the woman and the townspeople. He really shows us the deeper spiritual level of, of what is actually occurring here. Listen again. And see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. What's happening here is that Jesus is showing himself to be God and revealing that the glorious messianic age, the kingdom of God has begun. The disciples say, Rabbi, eat. And he says to them, I've got food that you don't even know about. They're puzzled. They, they don't understand that. And you can see them kind of bumping each other and saying, did you bring him something? You, I mean, I don't know where the food, where did he get the food? And he says this almost incomprehensible statement. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That, that's really kind of strange. You see, because food is what we need in order to work, right? Food is what we need to give us strength to do our work. Jesus is saying, I am strengthened to do what God has given me to do by doing what God has given me to do. He's saying my source of energy for doing God's will is doing God's will. You see, Jesus' satisfaction is to do the will of God. His satisfaction is to do the will of God. Jesus' sustenance, His sustenance, His nourishment, His empowerment is to do the will of God. And Jesus' submission is to the will of God. Brothers and sisters, let us follow our blessed Savior Jesus and and think this way and act this way that our satisfaction, our sustenance, our submission is all to do the will of God, to be about God's business. You see, we are mere humans and we need power from outside ourselves. Our sources of power come from outside of ourselves. But God gets his source of power from within himself. As man, Jesus grew tired and hungry and thirsty. But as God, his power was to act. And it came from actually acting. It came from doing the will of God. So Jesus is revealing himself to be no mere mortal. He is human, but he's more than human. The Word was God and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.1 1, 1 says. He revealed His glory again and again and He says, I am sustained to finish God's work by finishing God's work. There's something more specific here that's implied in verses, uh, that, that makes the connection between verse 35 and 36 make more sense. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me. So the question is, what is the will of Him who sent Him? Who who sent Jesus? God did, right? So what's the will of God to send Jesus? God's will for Jesus. The work that he gave him to accomplish is to give eternal life. That's God's will for Jesus, to give eternal life. John 12, 49 through 50, Jesus says, The Father who sent me has given me a commandment. And I know that His commandment is eternal life. John 6, 39, Jesus says, This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. What is that that raising up? To To raise it up on the last day. Who's going to be raised up on the last day? We will, right? Believers. He's come to give resurrection. He's come to bring the dead to life. He's come to raise us up and to give us eternal life. That is the will of God, for Jesus to give us eternal life. And so Jesus says, when he says this in John four thirty four, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish he, his work. He means this, my food is to give eternal life. My food is to give eternal life. That's my source of strength. To give eternal life is to give eternal life. I give life, Jesus says. I give life because I am life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. My food is to be who I am. My food is to be what I am. I am life. I'm living water. I'm bread from heaven. I don't just eat food. I am food. I don't get life. I give life. Jesus is eternal life. That helps explain the strange direction his words take in verses 35 through 36. He says, do you not say? And then he gives us a little proverb, a little saying that would be kind of like the farmers would say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Okay, this is like a colloquialism, right? It's a common saying. There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, he says, I tell you, Lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. I think he's looking and I think he's seeing the Samaritan people coming out of the village, coming toward them. And he says, you guys say there's four months in the harvest. That's the human way of thinking. There's four months in the harvest. There's this big long lag time between between sowing and reaping, between sowing and harvesting. And Jesus says, no, no, look, the fields are white to harvest. They're coming right now. Already, he says in verse 36, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. Again, there's the link. So that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Jesus is reaping eternal life. He's harvesting right then and there. That's what he's been doing with this woman here at the well and and using her as well through her. He's doing that even now among the Samaritan townspeople. Christ is so free and sovereign that he is not dependent at all on the usual four months it takes for sowing and reaping. He is collapsing, sowing and reaping into one event, and God can do that sort of thing. And that is what the Messianic age is to be like, according to the prophet prophet Amos. In the Old Testament, Amos says this about the Messianic age to come. When Amos is speaking, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, <coughs> excuse me, and the hills shall flow with it. That's a pretty bizarre thing to say. Let's think about it for a minute, though. Behold, the days are coming. Amos is speaking in the Old Testament and he says, he's looking forward, he's prophesying to the future. There's days that are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman or the sower will overtake the reaper, the harvester. So it's, it's again collapsing, harvesting and, 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 and sowing into, into one event. And the treader of grapes, what, what do we tread grapes for? What, why, what is he doing? He's squishing the grapes, right, to make wine. The treader of grapes, him who sows the seed... The, the guy who's trading the wine is going to actually be, be trading wine before the seed is even sown. It's a miraculous new time of, of harvesting, of, of winemaking, that, that all this seed sowing and harvesting just happens together miraculously. And this is coming in the future, Amos is saying. And Jesus is so, showing right here that this time is now in this, in this passage. Jesus is showing his disciples and us that these are the beginning of those days, the days when Jesus was speaking. He's saying, I am the Messiah, and I bring in the Messianic age, and it has begun. And so at the end of verse 36, he says that he's already reaping fruit for eternal life, that sower and reaper may rejoice together. What he's doing here is collapsing, sowing, and reaping into one event so that the joy is a foretaste of what Amos saw. Jesus is both sower and reaper at the same time. He is orchestrating the entire event by working as a sower and a reaper. He's speaking the word and reaping its fruit. And then he draws his disciples into his work. Verse 37 and 38, he says, "'For here the the saying holds true, "'One sows and another reaps. "'I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. "'Others have labored and you have entered into their labor.'" In other words, you are going to share in the reaping or the harvesting. But others have labored before you. Who are those who have labored before before them? I think in this specific passage, Jesus is speaking simply of himself and the woman. The Samaritan woman. Jesus has begun sowing the word in her heart and reaping fruit from her. She She is being harvested right there. She's a believer and the woman then goes and sows her word with the townspeople. That's why the story returns in verse 39 to 42 to the testimony of the woman and the testimony of Jesus. Remember the townspeople believe because of her word and then they have more faith because of Jesus' word. This is the labor of others that that the disciples enter into. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Isn't that the case with us? Right? Right? We have grandmothers, grandfathers, aunts and uncles, friends, neighbors who sowed some seed in us years ago. And that seed was sowed and they were laboring in, uh, 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 sowing seed. They were laboring over us and we maybe didn't come, right? But then later, maybe someone else came and and, and, and you heard the gospel and boom, you believed. You we, And that happens with us as well, right? Sometimes we share. I, I shared at Starbucks with with one of my baristas, and it was like the tree. I mean, you know, the fruit just fell off the tree, right? She believes. She goes to church. She reads her Bible. It's just amazing. But I know I was able to probably enter into the labor of someone else, right? People are laboring out there, and so we have to be faithful to keep, to keep laboring along with them, right? And we don't know that the labor we're doing this week isn't labor that's going to see its harvesting 10 years from now, right? 15 years from now. We just have to keep keep at it. We've got to keep at it. So here, in conclusion, three three things I want us to remember from this passage. Jesus is the glorious Son of God and Savior of the world whose food is to accomplish God's purpose, namely, to be the food that gives eternal life. He doesn't need life-giving food. He is life-giving food. He sows the world and He reaps eternal life. May God give you eyes to see His glory and to treasure Him above all things. Number two, His coming is the beginning of the Messianic age. And now we stand, we're right in the middle of that Messianic age. The old patterns of four months between sowing and reaping don't hold true. God is full of surprises. May we pray that God will work wonders in sowing and reaping in our lives in the lives of our friends and neighbors and third all our labor is important all our labor is important God uses men and women sinful men and women who have been forgiven by the grace of God to do the labor of the gospel so I pray that you would enter into that labor but remember that we are not the only laborers, and especially remember that Jesus is the laborer who has done the work, especially the work of labor on the cross. This was his main food. His, His food is to accomplish the work God gave him to do. And with the cross in view, where he died for our sins, he said this, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now I stand here, just like the woman at the well. I've been to the well. I've been to the well. And I've met Jesus. And He gave me water to drink. And I have eternal life, like many of you. If you are hearing my voice and you have yet to come to the well, the well of eternal life that is Jesus Christ, I, like the Samaritan woman, say, come and see Come and see. Come and see. Come and see a man who has seen everything about me. Come and see a man who knows my heart and the depravity and the wickedness that is there and has loved me in spite of myself. Who's loved me because of who he is, not because of who I am. You too can come this morning to the well and meet Jesus. You too can come and drink and have eternal life. Come now. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you more and more every day because of your son, Jesus. As you continue to open our eyes to our own sinfulness, to our own depravity, Lord, help us not to try to rationalize who we are, but to understand fully that, yes, we are sinners. We're sick. We're sick. And because we're sick, you came to heal us. Because we're sinners, you've called us to repentance. We thank you for that. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ, you died for us. Lord, even now, there may be people in this conversation, in this this conversation, in this congregation, who have been listening, that have yet to put their hope, put their trust, put their faith in you. Lord, we pray that you would do a wonder in their lives, that you would work a miracle in their lives and turn their hearts towards you. Lord, for those of us who have known you for many years and maybe our hearts have, have grown cold, Lord, help us. Lord, set our hearts on fire again for you. Lord, may we love you more than we love ourselves. And because we love you so much, may we also love our neighbors and share your gospel this week with those around us. We pray this all in your Son's name. Amen. I'm going to call the elders to please come forward. Prepare to pray for those who are in need. If you have any need for prayer, please come up.